KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This is our holiday show. Later in the hour, the Christmas truce of 1914. In the middle of World War I, after five months of slaughter on an industrial scale, British and German soldiers stopped fighting, met in the middle of no man's land, and exchanged gifts and food. It was a unique event in the history of modern warfare. Adam Hochschild has that story. Also, our Christmas music special. Bob Dylan fans have been puzzled and troubled by his Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart, ever since he released it in 2009. To help figure out what Dylan was doing, we turn to Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official website, bobdylan.com. He also teaches American history at Princeton. And finally, we'll have your Minnesota moment. Climate change transforms winter in St. Paul and Minneapolis. But first, in December of every year, Katha Pollock publishes her list of groups that need and deserve our support. This year, her list starts, of course, in Gaza. And Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She also writes for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I know it's work. It's a lot of work to figure out where are the best places to give money to, especially when the year has been so rough and the needs are so great. Number one on our list this year, of course, is Gaza. But the problem is finding who is doing the most significant relief work, helping the people who have you know, survived Israeli attack, had their homes destroyed, and are facing shortages of water, food, and medicine. I was especially grateful that you found the really important one, an indispensable organization that I'm embarrassed to say I knew nothing about before I read your column. Tell us about number one on your end of year giving list. It's called American Near East Refugee Aid, A-N-E-R-A, ANERA. Yeah, well, I took the recommendation of my friend, the award-winning Gazan poet, Mosab Abutoha. Um, I think he's he he knows what he's talking about. And Anera, which I like one thing I really liked about it, it has no religious or political affiliations. That's a definite plus in my book. And it works on relief and development in Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, and Jordan. So right now it's seeking donations to support blood banks in Gaza and provide displaced families with nourishing meals and hygiene kits. And there'll be more as as needs evolve, as they surely will. So I think they're they're very reputable and good. And you don't have to worry about your money landing in the hands of the wrong people. Because you know, John, whenever there's a big crisis, there are all these people sort of retool themselves so that, oh, yeah, we're really doing that. We're doing the thing you're caring about right this minute. But it's hard to know if they're actually doing that. Yeah, Anera has been doing this since the uh, late 60s, uh, helping Palestinian refugees, you know, in Jordan, in the West Bank, in Lebanon, and especially in Gaza. I looked up their website. It's fascinating to see how they how they do this. They're quite a big group as well as quite a long lasting group. Of course, the number one issue they face is that Hamas wants to control the supply of food and medicine coming in. And so their website explains what they do about this. Of course, 
because the U.S. State Department has designated Hamas as a terrorist group, anybody who intentionally aids Hamas gets banned and put out of business in the United States. So that's not an issue. The issue is, is Hamas intercepting the aid that Anera is delivering? And they answer that directly at their website. They say, quote, we have protective measures in place to ensure that our aid is safely delivered to Palestinian civilians and their families. It has su successfully delivered and distributed approved aid into Gaza without any interceptions or disruptions. The biggest problem they face is crowd control from desperate people, uh, which of course we've read about, has, should they say has sometimes led to the breakdown of orderly distribution in a few instances, but they have managed to deliver they say millions of meals since October 21st when outside aid was permitted, as well as, as you say, hygiene kits, medical aid, blankets and mattresses, pop-up health clinics, and organizing activities for the traumatized children. They have you know, these convoys of trucks that are allowed in. And they say, of course, we have a lot more trucks that are waiting to get in. It's impossible for us to deliver all of this aid rapidly. It is imperative that unlimited aid uh, be allowed in Gaza. They have 12 staff working inside Gaza, uh, despite the dangers. So thank you for recommending for year-end giving urgent relief for Palestinians in Gaza, anera.org. After Gaza, inside the United States, the biggest disaster the past year has been the complete bans on abortion in, I think it's 24 states, a staggering number that leaves millions of women denied access to the health care they need. Of course, we right away think of Planned Parenthood, but I consider Planned Parenthood to have plenty of money. I looked up their 2022 annual report, $2 billion in revenue revenue last year. So I'm interested in groups that do good work on this that don't have $2 billion. And you have a favorite. Well, I do have a favorite. And I want to say Planned Parenthood deserves every penny of that money, but maybe other places can also need some money. And one of them is the Bridget Alliance, uh, which is a favorite of mine, um, partly because it's right here. <laughs> It's right here in New York. And I know the people involved. So I know they're good people and are wise stewards of the money that people give them. What Bridget Alliance does is it does everything. It funds everything but the actual procedure, which other groups fund. It It's a travel service. So if you're in a red state or a state that, you know, you can't get an abortion there, they will pay your transportation They'll pay for your uh, lodging. They'll pay for your food. They'll pay for your uh, child care. All the ancillary funds, uh, ancillary needs that people don't often think about when they think, oh, yeah, well, if you're in Texas, you can just go to New York um, or you can go to Colorado. But actually, that's a big project, especially for a poor woman. And most of the women who are traveling are and who need help are, are quite low income. And may never, you know, they they what they may need. One Bridget Alliance wants they paid for new tires for the car, <laughs> the people who are traveling because the car broke down. That sort of thing happens all the time, and so I think they are really a wonderful, wonderful place to give. 
Bridget Alliance, that's B-R-I-G-I-D, BridgetAlliance.org. And next biggest crisis of the year has been the rise of Trump. He's leading in the polls now. He's ahead in five of the six swing states, according to the New York Times poll. Uh, He gets higher approval ratings than Joe Biden among core Democratic groups in the Democratic uh, base, young people, people of color, college women, single women. I don't want to give money to the National Democratic Party or to the Biden campaign. What do you suggest instead? Well, I have two ideas. One is the Wisconsin Democrats. You know, a lot of state Democratic parties are, are really barely functional. But the Wisconsin Democrats are extremely energetic and they organize all year round. Like, remember when there was going to be that 50 state project of Howard Deans and that never got off the ground, really. But in a few states, it did get off the ground. And uh, in the Wisconsin Democrats have scored big wins, even though they don't really control very much in the um, in the state government. Uh, They elected this was amazing. They elected liberal Janet Protashevitz to the state Supreme Court, which tipped the balance of the court. And then the Republicans wanted to impeach her on these spurious grounds as soon as she took her seat. And they forced the Republicans to abandon that. So that's a that's a huge win. What is the secret? Relentless year round organizing. You can't just parachute in and expect people to get all excited about your candidates. You have to do it all year round and build up a, a whole network of support. So I'm for them. I did a little more research on your suggestion. Wisconsin Democrats have 71 county party organizations, 275 local neighborhood action teams. They work year round. They've had a four year effort, which is culminating in 2024 at what they call hyper local organizing. They recruit candidates to run in every race, including like mayors and city councils of medium sized uh, cities and towns, especially in places where there's a threat of a mega takeover of offices that could undermine the 2024 presidential vote count. And let's remember, Wisconsin was the tipping point state in 2020, the state uh, where Biden won by the smallest margin. So it's really important that Trump not win Wisconsin in 2024. And luckily for us, as you say, the Wisconsin Democratic Party is terrific at this, and they've been working on it for a long time. Their website is WISDEMS, W-I-S-D-E-M-S, no space, WISDEMS.org. And you say you have a second one. I do. I like Black Voters Matter. Um, Now, Black Voters led the charge in defeating Trump in 2020, but Republican state officials are making it harder and harder for people in Black communities to access the polls. I'm sure you're your listeners know about some of these things, you know, just making it fewer polling places and you can't give people water at the while they're standing in these endless lines and making it harder to do mail vote by mail. So Black Voters Matter does the long-term deep grassroots organizing needed to register these voters, engage them and support them. And not just on election day, but every day and in every election up and down the ticket. It's very important. Black Voters Matter. You support them on the web at one word, blackvotersmatterfund.org. 
org. I think we have time for you to mention one more. Okay, I'm going to mention, this is my sentimental favorite, Alice's Kids. This I found out about this group on Twitter, and uh, what they do is, and they're really great, what they do is they help poor children who don't have the basics. And it's just shocking that in our immensely wealthy country, this is this should be a problem. Decent shoes and clothes, a warm coat, a backpack, uh, food to be uh, be in an after school activity. So what they what Alice kids people write to Alice's kids, teachers and social workers will write to them and say, we would like you know a hundred dollars for this purpose, and Alice's kids will give it to them, and it helps a lot of people. And you know, I just feel like there is so much trauma associated with poverty. It's not just not having things that you need. It's the way you're humiliated by not having them. You can be bullied. People can make fun of you. And if somebody wants to come in and help a child feel good and have the things that the other kids have, that's really great. So I like them. Alice'sKids.org. So to sum up, Katha's list for end of year giving. For Gaza, Anera.org, A-N-E-R-A. For abortion rights, BridgetAlliance.org. To defeat Trump, the Wisconsin Democratic Party, WISDEMS, W-I-S-D-E-M-S.org, and BlackVotersMatterFund.org. And her personal pick, Alice'sKids.org. Katha Pollitt, her end-of-year giving list with another half-dozen ideas is at thenation.com. Katha Special thanks for this help, and thanks for talking with us today. Happy holidays to all who celebrate. Thank you for having me on the show, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. For our holiday show, we want to talk about the Christmas truce of World War I. It's a unique event in the history of modern warfare. For comments, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's the author of seven books, most recently the award-winning history of World War I, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Berkeley. Adam, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. We, we honor war makers uh, regularly, but it's hard to think of cases where those who refuse to fight receive official recognition. I think you've noticed that. That's true. What's happening today, uh, or it's starting to happen today, and it'll happen still more so tomorrow on the 100th anniversary, is that there is uh, not just among peace-minded types, but really from governments as well, which is quite surprising, uh, a number of ways in which the Christmas truce of 1914 is being officially commemorated. It's quite unusual to see this, but and I think there's some reasons for it which we can get to, but it was also a very unusual event. This uh, happened, this was the first Christmas of a terrible war, the First World War. 
Well, remind us uh, what what happened on uh, December twenty fifth, nineteen fourteen, on the Western Front of World War One. Okay. Well, let's roll the clock back a hundred years. The war had been going on for uh, uh, not quite five months. Hundreds of thousands of people had been killed. Europe had never seen industrialized warfare before. There were 27,000 French soldiers killed in a single day in August of that year. Um, And then along a portion of the Western Front, it was mainly the area where there were German troops on one side and British troops on the other side. On Christmas Day, a hundred years ago tomorrow, strange things started to happen. Uh, Somebody would hold up a sign in the German trench saying, uh, we no shoot, you no shoot. Uh, Someone would uh, pop his head out of a British trench and find that he wasn't shot at and would come out further and then would find German soldiers coming out to meet him in no man's land between the trenches. Um, In some areas the night before, uh, soldiers on one side had heard soldiers on the other side singing Christmas carols and had joined in because they knew some of the same carols. They just were singing them in different languages. So along this portion of the front uh, where it was the British facing the Germans, in much of that uh, long stretch, it was about 30 miles or so, Soldiers from both sides, thousands of them, came out into this muddy, shell-pocked, no-man's land between the trenches. They traded gifts. They traded uh, uh, German beer for British rum. They snipped off each other's coat buttons and traded them. uh, And they played soccer. There was no proper soccer field, of course, and there usually weren't soccer balls, but they kicked around a tin can or stuffed a straw into a sandbag and uh, kicked it around. Uh, It was an amazing and unprecedented event, and unfortunately, in that part of the world, it never happened again. And you say that this this week, this year, a hundred years later, uh, this Christmas truce is being celebrated officially, uh, especially in Britain. Uh, Tell us what's going on. Yeah, this is quite remarkable to see. It's always been marked unofficially, especially in recent years. There have been a couple of books about it. There was a film about it. There are a few places along the old Western Front where you can see a sort of crude, homemade memorial of some sort. But what took me by surprise was this year it's being officially marked. There is a soccer tournament to commemorate the Christmas Truce soccer games with teams, youth teams from Britain, Belgium, Germany, France, Austria, uh, that's been taking place in Belgium this month. Uh, every school in the United Kingdom received a packet of materials about the Christmas Truce, uh, photographs, eyewitness accounts, uh, uh, student worksheets, uh, bits of dialogue translated into various languages. How do you say to a, you know, a soldier on the other side, uh, "I won't shoot if you won't shoot," uh, things like that. And uh, in fact, there's also a children's competition in Britain to design a memorial. Uh, to the Christmas truce, and one of the judges was Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge. <laughs> wow, it doesn't uh, get any better than that. That's true. 
So I wonder, well, what, what makes it safe? And incidentally, I could also mention that there was a, a, a memorial soccer field inaugurated in Belgium, and the British and German ambassadors were both on, hmm. both on hands for this. I want to ask you about one other thing that you mentioned in your article about the Christmas cruise for Tom Dispatch. We've got a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. You say that there was a, a reenactment of sorts for a TV commercial in Britain that's that's on video now. What's that? That's it's quite amazing. It's it's a very professionally done. They must have paid a lot of money for professional actors to do this. It runs about three minutes. It's from the supermarket chain Sainsbury's, uh, and uh, you know you can Google it and find it quite easily online. And it shows you know people reenacting the role of German and British soldiers. Uh, the commercial is for a uh, commemorative chocolate bar, <laughs> and the proceeds from this chocolate bar will go to the Royal British Legion, the official veterans organization. So there again, it's a kind of official commemoration of this startling outbreak of peace. And if you want to see that Sainsbury's uh, commercial with the reenactment of the Christmas truce, we have a, a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. So, uh, Adam Hochschild, I guess we should be delighted that for once the people who, who refuse to fight are being honored by the governments that sent them to fight in, in a useless and horrifying war. Or, or should we be delighted? Well, I think we should be delighted because this was a remarkable event. And it's good to see it being remembered. But uh, I'm curious about what makes it safe to be officially commemorated. And I think there are a couple of things. One is that the Christmas truce only lasted for a day or two. On some parts of the front, the very next day, firing started up uh, up again. A couple of places, uh, the ceasefire lasted for two or three days. But essentially, the war in its full fury resumed very quickly after this. Also, the Christmas truce didn't represent a breakdown of military discipline because it was sanctioned by officers on the scene. Officers as high-ranking as colonels came out to greet their counterparts from the other side uh, in no man's land. So these are two things that make it safe. Also, to be crass about it, commemorating anything these days can be big business. Mm. Uh, First World War tourism in northern France and Belgium is a huge industry. In Belgium alone, uh, the government is, uh, of the Flanders region is investing $41 million in new tourist facilities of one sort or another for this four-year commemorative period of the war, and that's not even counting private investment. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, if we can add a few peace sites to the existing war sites, so much the better. Uh, the other... Uh, profit-making industry that's gotten involved here is professional soccer, which is a huge business, particularly in Europe, where teams are worth billions of dollars. Five of the ten uh, most valuable professional soccer teams in the world are in Great Britain. And it's no accident that the Trade Association for Professional Soccer uh, is one of the people financing this packet of information that's going to all the British schools. And then the Trade Association for Soccer for all of Europe is also sponsoring the 
commemorative soccer tournament in Belgium. So but now, what what exactly what exactly is the the connection here between today's billion dollar soccer, uh, let's call it industry, and soldiers refusing uh, to fight on Christmas Day of 1914? Well, one of the things that I mentioned was something they did on that day was they played soccer. And I think okay. the professional soccer industry uh, sees a chance to associate itself with a good news historical event, uh-huh. um, get some publicity, and also professional soccer is in many European countries losing some of its audience because there's a lot of competition for people spending and leisure time. So I think that's one reason why they've latched onto this. Um, this raises the question of what's not going to be commemorated as over the next four years we reach anniversary after anniversary of various events in the First World War. Let me just remind our listeners, we're speaking with Adam Hochschild about the Christmas truce of 1914, 100 years ago today. Adam's the author of To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, and he wrote about the Christmas truce for Tom Dispatch. We have a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. So uh, in your book, To End All Wars, while you have a very uh, moving account of the Christmas truce, you describe some some far more subversive and radical acts of, of opposition to World War One. Absolutely. Uh, And they didn't happen until a couple of years later. In the spring of 1918, uh, the Tsar was overthrown in Russia. 300 years of the Romanov dynasty came to an end, uh, and the news of this uh, immediately spread through the Russian army. Uh, And there was an American correspondent, a United Press correspondent, with the Russian army at the front, and he watched through his binoculars as Russian and German troops met in no man's land. They didn't have a common language, but that wasn't a problem. The German soldiers thrust their bayonets into the earth, and the Russian soldiers blew across their open palms to show that the Tsar had been swept away. Mm. Uh, There was a lot of this fraternization, and it only increased later in the year when uh, the Bolsheviks took over in Russia, and for all their faults, which we certainly know enough of by now, uh, they were committed to ending the war. And this meant there was even more fraternization between Russian and German troops. If you go online, you know, you'll only find two or three photographs of the Christmas truce of 1914 in the West, but you'll find dozens of pictures of Russian and German soldiers uh, fraternizing during these this extended period in 1917, including my favorite, which shows Russian and German troops dancing together mm. in couples with <laughs> one soldier from each side and each couple of Russians in their high fur hats. Wow. And But this really did represent a breakdown of military discipline, and the generals on both sides were appalled by this. And uh, fraternization... Uh remarkable as as it uh, was, was only the beginning of uh, the uh, resistance and refusal to fight, especially on the Eastern Front. You've also, uh, you've also described desertion on the Eastern Front. How, how extensive was desertion on the Eastern Front? 
Well, there are no good numbers on this, but the British military attaché in Russia estimated that over the course of the year 1917, roughly a million Russian soldiers deserted their frontline units, and wow. most of them simply walked home to their villages. Wow! Uh, and this was one of the reasons why Russia pulled out of the war. You, you can't continue fighting with an army like that. Um, similarly, in the West... As the end of the war approached, late 1918, German soldiers started to desert in large numbers, not from the front lines, but from uh, rear area units where they either just dropped out of sight or evaded orders to go to the front. The police chief of Berlin uh, before the end of the war estimated that there were more than 40,000 deserters in hiding just in his city. And this is you know, a major reason uh, why the German high command sued for peace. So I think these folks uh, should be celebrated because they helped bring the war to an end. Similarly, the French soldiers in 1917 who mutinied by the hundreds of thousands, uh, they, for the most part, didn't leave their trenches or camps, but simply refused orders to make the sort of suicidal attacks against machine gun fire that were so much a characteristic of this war. And uh, as a result, the French high command ordered no more attacks for the next year. Wow. So Adam Hochschild, uh, there were also uh, the, the political opponents of the war. You wrote about many of the British opponents in your book, To End All Wars, uh, this is a time when they, they too should be remembered and honored. Remind us, remind us. Absolutely. Well, there were strong opponents of this insane war in all of the countries involved. Um, in Germany, the great radical Rosa Luxemburg, who spoke out strongly for freedom of speech, both in the Kaiser's Germany and in the new Soviet Union, was sent to prison for several years for her opposition to the war. In the United States, Eugene V. Debs, great labor leader, uh, spoke out against the war when the U.S. entered it, urged resistance to the draft. He was sent to prison in 1918, and he was still in prison in November 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket. And let's remember that Woodrow Wilson refused to let Gene Debs out of jail even when the war ended, even even in his last acts in office. Uh, Woodrow Wilson wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, let Gene Debs out of the uh, Atlanta federal penitentiary. It was up to his successor to do that. That's right. It was Warren Harding who did it, of mm. all people. Uh, usually not well thought of as a president, but I'm glad he, he let Debs out of jail. And there were plenty of of war opponents in other countries as well. Uh, In France, the great socialist leader Jean Jaurès spoke out very strongly against the war that he saw coming in 1914, Uh, raced to Brussels for a last-minute meeting before the war began uh, with the leaders of uh, radical parties from other countries, put his arm around the shoulders of the German social democratic leaders, said, we will never make war on each other. Because of that, three days later, when he returned to France, he was assassinated. Three days after that, the war began. His assassin, incidentally, was uh, held during in jail during the war, put on trial afterwards, and was found innocent because this was judged to be a crime of passion. <laughs> Man. One of those uh, oh, legal gimmicks that has 
traditionally allowed men to get away with murdering women, but in this case it was used for another purpose. Adam, we've only got about uh, two minutes left here, but I've got to ask you about the uh, whether you see any connection between the, the celebration of the Christmas truce of uh, 1914 and the plans now underway to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War in the United States. Well, I do. I think when we commemorate the, the beginning of the sending of U.S. combat troops to Vietnam, we need to commemorate all the Americans who worked hard in every possible way to try to stop that war from ever happening in the first place. The resistors within the military who stopped fighting, the draft refusers who went to jail, the hundreds and thousands, millions of us, really, who marched in anti-war demonstrations. These, to me, are some of the real heroes of, of that period. Adam Hochschild, his book on opposition to World War I is called To End All Wars, and he wrote about the 100th anniversary of the Christmas truce for Tom Dispatch. We've got a link at the website for this show. Adam, it's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, John. It was a real pleasure. We spoke with Adam Hochschild about the Christmas truce of 1914 in December 2014, a hundred years later. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This is our Christmas show, and now it's time for our special Christmas music feature. Our guest is Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. He's written many books, including The Age of Reagan. It's out now in paperback. We turn to him today to help us understand what the heck is going on with the new Bob Dylan Christmas album. We reached him today in Princeton. Sean, welcome back to the program. Well, great to be back, John. Well, I want to start by listening to track one, Here Comes Santa Claus. It's a Gene Autry song, which I have to say is one of the most irritating holiday songs ever written, <laughs> even before Bob Dylan sang it. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ran down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing and blixing and old as reindeer, pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings, say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes Hang your stock and say your prayers. Sean, what is this? Is this a joke of some kind? No, it's not a joke at all. Although, you know, you could turn it into one by imagining that the person who's really singing is Vincent Price. There's <laughs> <laughs> a certain macabre uh, mm. aspect to the song. So you can look at it that way. You can look at a Bob Dylan song any way you want. But no, no, no. This is all very, very straight. Um, this is Bob Dylan in, in, in many ways um, looking back to his own childhood. And uh, he's singing the songs that he heard as a kid in Hibbing, uh, where everybody, you know, listened to Christmas music, whether you were Jewish or not. Um, and he's recalling those times and those songs in that spirit. 
Uh, and I understand that uh, that the album itself is a uh, benefit and uh, that the royalties are all being donated to charity. In perpetuity, that's right. Um, all of them, it's going to go, the royalties are going to feed America in the United States, and I think that there are some, um, there's a group in the U.K., and there's another group to, you know, to feed the homeless. You know, basically, this is uh, Bob Dylan in some ways um, being the character Pretty Boy Floyd from the old Woody Guthrie song. He's, you know, um, providing Christmas dinner to the families on relief. It's just that he's not sticking up a bank. He's sticking up his own fans. <laughs> well, let's listen to another one. Um, I'll be home for Christmas. I have to say, when Bob Dylan sings I'll be home for Christmas, you have to wonder, is this a promise or is this a threat? <laughs> I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow and mistletoe And presents on a tree Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas if only. In my dreams Bob Dylan, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, sounds like a reason to bolt your doors, Sean. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's hard to say what home is for Bob Dylan, because he's on his bus so much of the time when he's not getting arrested, that, you know, being home for Christmas is a big deal for him, because, uh, you know, he's not on his bus. But, you know, this is part of what the album's about. That's a song. That was originally recorded by Bing Crosby, as were, I think, 13 of the 15 songs on this album. It's a, sort of his tribute to Bing Crosby, among other things. But um, in 1943, remember, Christmas songs during World War II had a whole different meaning. I mean, they were very, uh, it was very touching, actually, very moving. It was one of the, uh, it, was, it was the music, actually, that kind of held people together, uh, wondering whether their boys and, in some cases, girls overseas would ever come home alive, ever. Um, so, you know, this is a very moving song. It was moving in the 40s. And then after the war, Christmas music became a kind of way to uh, assert with some uh, aggressiveness, to, to assert a kind of normality, which people hadn't felt, a lot of people in America hadn't felt uh, since the beginning of the Depression back in, 19, you know, back in the early 30s. So he's, he's, he's trying to recapture that in part, recapture that mood, which is bigger than Christmas, uh, bigger than Christmas in America. It has to do with a specific time and a specific place. And uh, it's also, as I say, a sort of tribute to Bing Crosby. He doesn't have Bing Crosby's voice, but he's copying Bing Crosby's phrasing. And I know he admires Bing Crosby's phrasing, so uh, that's his chance to do that, too. Well, let's listen to another one. Uh, maybe you want to you wanna say anything about this one, Must Be Santa? This one includes our own David Hidalgo, uh, the, the uh, great uh, East L.A. Uh, musician who's a big favorite of ours here. Indeed, Los Lobos. He's the yeah. man. 
he's maybe the most gifted, one of the most gifted musicians that Dylan's ever worked with. Um, um, Must Be Santa is my favorite song on the album. It's a polka song. It's basically ripped off from a Texas, the arrangement of a Texas uh, rock polka band. Um, and But it also recalls, again, his Christmas time because it recalls the great polka bands of the Midwest of the 1940s and 1950s. People like, um, you know, Whoopi John Wilfart, um, his real name, Frankie Yankovich. Um, Would you please spell the last name of Whoopi John <laughs> Wilfart, please? W-I-L-F-A-H-R-T. Now, are you sure that this is not one of Bob Dylan's many pseudonyms? <laughs> like Roosevelt Gook. And, <laughs> no, no, I have a photograph of Whoopi John Wilfart at the Minneapolis airport taken at about the same time, about 1948, with his band. And I, I, I happen to know a lot about Whoopi John. He, uh, he was quite a character. When he died, it turned out there was, he had left money in most of the, the hotels of the Midwest, um, stashed away of, uh, lots and lots of money, and uh, um, basically hiding it from the feds. And he lived, lived quite a wild life, um, as you might imagine, by a man named Whoopi John. <laughs> well, let's, let's... I would never call you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. John Wilentz, the official historian of the official BobDylan.com website. From the Bob Dylan Christmas album, let's listen to Must Be Santa featuring uh, David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. <laughs> They're dancing in the corridors here at KPFK. <laughs> Must be Santa, Bob Dylan with David Hidalgo from the Dylan... I'm, I'm dancing here in prison. Great time. <laughs> uh, let's listen to uh, another one. Here's Bob Dylan's Winter Wonderland. Wonderland. Winter Wonderland. Wonderland. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane. Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland On the way Is a bluebird In his place Is a new bird He sings a love song As we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman then pretend that he is passing ground He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on, we'll conspire As we dream by the fire To face unafraid the plans that we made Walking in our window 
Bob Dylan, he sounds like your grizzled old uncle who's had a little too much of the spiked eggnog at the family <laughs> gathering. I, I think that's the point, actually. Actually, there's the Wonder Bread Singers, you know, the, the, the whitest <laughs> white bread singers I've ever heard. But you also listen closely and you hear Donnie Heron on the, on the pedal yeah. steel. I think it's the first time that Winter Wonderland's been done, at least in recent memory, uh, with a pedal steel guitar. Dylan adds always a touch. There are touches of, of, uh, of the current Bob Dylan along with the Bob Dylan, what Bob Dylan was hearing when he was seven years old. You know, this this whole uh, project made me think of Dylan's uh, radio program on the yes. XM and Sirius Satellite, where uh, we see what a, a connoisseur and scholar Bob Dylan is of these pre, uh, pre-rock, earlier 20th century genres. In a way, this is part of that project. Very much so, except the difference is, I mean, this could be a show from that series called Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. But the difference is that he sings all the songs. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't just introduce them. But in fact, one of the songs, What Must Be Santa, actually did appear in the, um, I forget the name of the, of the band, but uh, anyway, on, on his Christmas show from, from XM, you know, Sirius XM. So, yes, there is a similarity. He knows a lot about it. He wants to, you know, this is an active archival, uh, you know, he's an archivist, among other things. And um, this, this album is an example of that. Uh, let's listen to another one. Of course he has to do Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Dylan's little town of Bethlehem. I can only say there must be some way out of here. <laughs> this is not one of my favorite cuts on the album. <laughs> um, there, there, there are others that are better. Um, uh, a little town of Bethlehem. Yeah, not his best performance. Either. Well, you know, some we of songs, some of the, well, some of the songs just don't. I mean, Christmas produced a lot of interesting, wonderful music, which is why so many people cut Christmas albums. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody from you know um, Frank Sinatra to uh, Ray Charles to uh, Barbara Streisand. I mean, even the Jews cut Christmas albums, right? Uh, Neil Diamond has a new one, even the second one. Um, so th- there's a songbook, a real songbook. But some of the songs are very difficult. This is one of them, actually. And uh, the Christmas song, the famous Mel Torme song, is also you need a real range to sing those songs well. And I'm afraid that this doesn't quite do it, at least not for me. We're speaking with Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website, bobdylan.com. One thing that strikes me about this this uh, music that's so puzzling, so confusing, so troubling to the uh, Bob Dylan's uh, um, classic Fantastic. music, yeah. Bob has always 
uh, made a practice of pulling the rug out from under fans who thought they had him pegged. Right. He spent a lot of his career refusing to fulfill his fans' wishes. Right. And this is certainly part of that. Uh, you can see it that way. I mean, the other thing is this is a cover album, right? I mean, these are all cover songs. There's not a single Bob Dylan song on here that he wrote. Um, and whenever Bob Dylan does a cover album, um, it usually means that there's a change there's a change you're going to come. Um, he did self-portrait, which got roundly panned, especially by, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but you'll, you'll remember Greil Marcus's famous first line of his review in Rolling Stone of that album, which is, what is this blank? Um, what is this crap, but not quite crap? Not quite that, yeah. And then, he, you know, and, and then he went on to do, you know, Blood on the Tracks. Right? Yeah. Um, then he did the cover albums in uh, the early 90s, you know, the two folk acoustic albums, uh, Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, and then next thing he comes out with is Time Out of Mind, which is a whole different thing. Yeah. So who knows what's going to come? Here's, here's another cover up. So it's, 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 it's Bob Dylan trying to, trying to, and I actually kind of mean this. It's him plumbing his depths. He's trying to find something. He's trying to locate something in his soul, in himself, in his music. And this is the way he does it, by singing other people's songs, singing a whole album of other people's songs. Um, so, so it's interesting for that. You have to watch out for that. The second thing is, this is the first time he's done a Christian album since Shot of Love. In other words, this is a spiritual record. This is about his beliefs. I mean, you know, he's, 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 he's a Christian of a, of a very weird kind. So you have to see it in that context, too. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which Dylan is... And that also disappointed his fans, by the way. You know, when he went gospel, people thought... Yes, just disappointed on. is putting it mildly. Yeah, people went nuts. Um, although I think that, in retrospect, if you go back and listen to some of those albums, not, not all of them, not saved, but, but if you listen to Shot of Love again, you'll be very surprised. There's a lot of really good music on it. Well, got to serve somebody. Uh, in retrospect, does have some, some strengths. Uh, Slow train coming, absolutely. And but go back and listen to Shot of Love sometime. You'll, you know, the song about Lenny Bruce. Um, uh, it, it's him kind of being semi um, secular. But anyway, my point is only that Bob Dylan is doing a lot of different things at, at, at the same time, and he's doing a lot of different things at the same time in this album. It just sounds so schmaltzy and innocuous. But nothing with Bob Dylan, even at, at its most schmaltzy, is is to be taken completely at face value. Well, I think we've got time for one more. Let's listen to, from the Bob Dylan Christmas album, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide game Next year all our troubles will be miles As in olden days, happy golden days of your faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. 
faithful friends who are dear to us. Uh, Sean Wilentz, I don't know, you can say, uh, you know, this isn't singing, it's croaking. But, you know, when Tom Waits croaks, a lot of people think it's great. Or when Louis, Louis Armstrong sings this song, and he, you know, he doesn't have a beautiful voice either in the classic Absolutely. sense. I don't, know, I don't know what the complaining's about. I really don't. It's <laughs> the same voice that's saying, you know, love and theft, and, the, you know, I, I, I don't quite get it. It's that I think it has more to do that you're not, you're used to hearing these songs sung by Nat King Cole. Yeah. Or by, you know, someone with, or Mel Torme, someone with a very smooth voice. Um, so... Bob Dylan is certainly adding a new dimension to Christmas <laughs> that we didn't hear before. Um, but it's a voice that is instantly recognizable, you know, much as, you say, Louis Armstrong's was. You know, when you hear those voices, it takes you two, se- two nanoseconds, you know who you're listening to. Yeah. And um, so immediately that conjures up a whole series of associations. And then it's not just the voice, which at times falters, it doesn't hit the notes, you know, on that, on, that, on that track in particular. But again, it's about the phrasing. Listen to how he's parsing out his words. Listen to how he's doing that with the music. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a very um, much more complicated record than, than people uh, would think about because he's taking all that seriously. Maybe more seriously now than anyone else because this song has been sung by a million other people. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan... When he sings, you know, I don't know, um, um, Summer Days or any of the songs that he's done recently, he's the only person who does those. Maybe Sheryl Crow will do them too, but very few anymore, right? It's not like Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's his song. Now he has to go up against the entire galaxy of American singers going back to, you know, Eddie Cantor and before. So he has to add something new to a tradition, and that's part of what's going on here too. Sean Wilentz is the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. Sean, thank you for helping us understand. (laughs) Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. We spoke with Sean Wilentz about Bob Dylan's Christmas album in December 2009. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Christmas in Minnesota this year brought a record-breaking warm winter without snow. The temperature on Christmas Day in St. Paul was 54. That's the warmest on record for the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, according to the National Weather Service. It made headlines in the New York Times. Such days are likely to become increasingly common because of climate change said Jessica Hellman, director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In northern Minnesota, emergency personnel have been warning people to stay off the lakes, which are covered by an unusually thin layer of ice. In Becker County, a 67-year-old man was found dead on Saturday after his all-terrain vehicle cracked through thin ice, according to the Becker County Sheriff's Office. Tad Bond, who coaches a local high school ice fishing team, said ice fishing competitions in much of the state had been postponed as wintertime anglers waited impatiently for the cold to set in. Global warming is bringing dramatic change to winter in St. Paul. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. 
Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm-hmm.